this afternoon for the ministry of the word, we turn together to the book of First Peter, looking here to some verses from First Peter 1, look at verses 3 through 5, but I'll read verses 1 through 12 for the context, First Peter 1, beginning at verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, or you greatly rejoice, Though now, for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible, and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what, or what manner of time, the Spirit of Christ, who was in them, was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. As far as the reading of, of God's word this evening, congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, Westminster Shorter Catechism begins Asking, what is man's chief end? That is, what is our purpose? It's asking, what is our ultimate meaning? What is, what is the ultimate meaning of life? And it answers that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And we might ask, well, how is it that people are to glorify God? What does it mean to praise and, and to worship God in all of our life? If we're going to be effective in glorifying God and enjoying Him forever, surely that means that you and I must be intentional. Care must be given in how we glorify Him and why. And likewise, we should be deliberate as we, as we seek to enjoy Him in in all of our life. And such attention is displayed. It ought to be displayed in all of our life. And it is displayed in our liturgy, for instance. A quick glance at the order of worship shows we, we are deliberate, aren't we, in giving God glory. The whole service is organized to praise the Lord. It's organized as a conversation between God and his people. Each part of, 
of the service. God is speaking. His people are answering. We come under the authority of God. We come under his call to worship. We submit ourselves to his word and to his will in our life. And with similar intentionality, Peter as well, he he comes right out in the beginning of this epistle. He wants to draw the attention of of his readers to, to blessing our God. The Apostle Peter powerfully drives us to bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter will ground everything that he's going to say in blessing God as God works, as as he extols all that God has accomplished. The verses that we read together, they're dense, they're full of meaning. Maybe as we get going, we'll see that these things are, are true. Many of these themes that that he begins with here in these these first few verses get repeated throughout the letter. I encourage you to read the letter and see see if it isn't for yourself as well. Well, the main idea here in these few verses together is we bless God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You can see that written in the bulletin. I've given three points there which take up our divisions We bless God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, first, according to God's mercy. And second, because of our inheritance. And third, because of God's power. And first, then, is according to God's mercy. You see, mercy, mercy is different than grace. God's grace focuses, doesn't it, on on our inability, focuses on on the fact that you and I are unworthy of God's attention and affection. Sinners, isn't it true, like you and me, we're so bankrupt that that we we don't deserve anything but God's judgment. Ephesians 2 echoes this as well. It says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And Paul will, will continue on in Ephesians 2 saying, by grace you are saved, not by works. Grace. It focuses on the inability, the depravity of man and concludes that God's favor extended to you and me is not deserved. But mercy, mercy has a different focus, not on the recipient, but the one who is who is giving. It, it has a focus on our, on our God. Think of people, people who are merciful. They are kind. They are gracious. It doesn't focus so much on the recipient, but the one who's giving. Mercy has a, a consideration of, of others, right? It's a, a kindness towards others. Mercy in the Bible is often translated for God's covenant faithfulness, for his steadfast love. Mercy exalts then God's faithfulness, God's covenant-keeping attributes. The faithfulness of God is on full display then. In that word, mercy. For instance, in the law, we, we read this morning that God visits the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate him. But showing mercy, there's that word, mercy, to thousands of those who love him and keep his commandment. That word translated there for mercy. That's in other places translated as, as steadfast love or, or it could be even his, his covenant faithfulness. The Old Testament, you might say, and even the New Testament is full of testimonies of God's covenant faithfulness, of his mercy, his kindness towards his people. 
You think of a great example of this in Jesus' mercy that he, that he displays throughout his ministry. Even speaking of, of the crowds there as, as sheep without a shepherd. Jesus has mercy for the people. He, he healed diseases and sicknesses. And in Romans 9, Paul picks up this as well. He says, God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God's mercy then is the beginning of Peter's argument, which drives Peter to praise and bless the Lord for the mercy of, of God has caused us to be begotten, that is, born again. Begotten is, is born again. Born again or begotten to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And the truth is that you and I need to be changed. One writer says something like, you're born once and you die twice. Or, or you're born twice and you die once. Either you're born once and you die twice, the second death being an eternal death of punishment, or you're born twice, you die and then live forever in the grace and the mercy of God. For the second birth is a spiritual birth, a birth where the heart is renewed, where the affections are are healed and directed. Maybe Peter has in mind the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. You remember that? Where, where Jesus says to Nicodemus that he must be born again. Nicodemus believed Jesus was talking about a second physical birth. But far from it, Jesus was talking about a spiritual birth. He even pointed to the bronze serpent in the context there, saying that as the serpent was raised, so too the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him or looks upon him would have eternal life. The point is that that as looking at the serpent lifted up in the wilderness brought life and, and healing for Israel, so too, looking to, in faith, our Lord Jesus Christ, who was lifted up for the salvation of his people, so too they receive life, eternal life, through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so being born again, this is all encompassed here in, in Peter's theology. You see how deep this is. This is all work course of the Holy Spirit, for the Holy Spirit works new life in God's people. It's a gift of God's mercy because, because spiritual life is needed, because it's needed, because we're all dead in our trespasses and sins. We need to be made alive through the Spirit of God. You and I must, must be born again. And it says they're born again, born again to a living hope. Because of the new birth, then there's a, a resulting hope, you see. In Proverbs 10, 28, it says, The hope of the righteous brings joy, but the expectation of the wicked will perish. You could think of hope as well, in the context not just of, of the Proverbs, but you could think of this as well in the context of the book of Ecclesiastes. It speaks there of the vanity of, of living life without living before the face of God. Vanity of vanity, right? We, we live and then we die. Empty. Life is empty without living before the face of God. But the preacher concludes in the book of Ecclesiastes that life lived before the face of God is a meaningful life. Again, 
Again, we can hear these echoes of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, can't we? Being born again to a living hope means that there's meaning to life. It means that believers can have a good expectation for the future. One writer, he says that a living hope prompts the Apostle Paul as well, Philippians, to say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is living hope is a hope that is established through the resurrection because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is proof of the believer's resurrection as well. In him, in him, they believers already have a new life being born again and are guaranteed their future resurrection, which indeed is a, a living hope. How encouraging isn't that for you and for me this afternoon and all this? All this is worked out by God's mercy. God's mercy extends to believers, and it causes Peter to call out in praise and blessing of our God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God's mercy is shown most clearly in the work of Jesus Christ, as Jesus Christ also pours out the Holy Spirit, makes people born again to a, to a living hope, as that mercy extends out, causes also people to overflow in blessing and praise to our God. And so praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But not just for his mercy. No, look, also, also there's an inheritance in the text as well. Secondly, we join Peter because, because of our inheritance. You think of children for a moment who are born into a family. Proverbs 13, 22 says, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. You think of being born and expecting or desiring or looking forward to, to an inheritance. The text also points to an inheritance. Our God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he has provided a most wonderful inheritance for his people. You think of an inheritance in the context of, of Israel. Inheritance, land, was was passed on from generation to generation. But for those who are dispersed, those who are living outside of the land of Israel, what, what comforting words for them that there's still an inheritance. This is this is written to, to those of the dispersion, those who are scattered in what is what is now lower Turkey. You think of how comforting that must have been to them. There, there's an inheritance. For them, think of how important inheritances are, not just for Israel, the economy of, of the land, the blessings of the Lord. Think of inheritances even, even for us as well. Even today, there are so many family fights, aren't there, over inheritances. After death, so many times, the family, the family rushes home and, and claims various objects before others can come. Perhaps you've seen this. Perhaps it's been done to you. Perhaps you were one who, who lived far off. Think of some of the stories I've heard of, of immigrants who came to Canada or the United States. They hear of their parents passing away. And they travel back to Holland or, or to the country they've come from only to find the house empty. Everything, everything is gone. Things promised to them, things that they have been expecting since they were children have been hauled away. All the heirlooms, 
all the heirlooms have been claimed. Inheritance can cause generational strife, can't it? They're important to us. On the one hand, we say, well, well, it's only stuff. But the stuff, the stuff resembles a life that we've lived together. And after a death, the stuff resembles a broken trust, doesn't it? A feeling of betrayal, a, a stressed relationship. And all of that gets burned into our memories, gets burned into our souls through the pain of grief. For people away from the land of promise, they might wonder what inheritance is waiting for them. But look at what Peter says. There's an inheritance for believers, and not just a, a small inheritance. This is a secure inheritance. The inheritance is imperishable. That means that means it doesn't die, it doesn't decay. You and I might get left a, a farm with cattle, but the cattle can perish through disease, through drought and disaster. This, this is imperishable. And the inheritance is also undefiled. That means it's not polluted, unlike land, perhaps, where, where a well can become polluted through, through other things being thrown into it. The well goes bad and then it forces the people to move on. No, the inheritance for believers is undefiled. This inheritance is perfect. This inheritance is pure. This inheritance also, notice what Peter says, will not fade away. One writer says that this is the opposite of, of a flower, a flower which, which fades away. One day it's here and the next day it is, it is gone. This inheritance does not fall away. It will not wither. It will not die. It does not decrease. And the security of the inheritance is further guaranteed. It's guaranteed by God's keeping. It is, it is reserved which means it's kept, it's guarded, it's preserved. Luke even uses this term in Acts 12. And he, he talks there about, about Peter. Peter, who was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with chains, and sentries before the dark door were guarding. That's that word for keeping or reserving. They're, they're guarding the prison. But of course, the guards could not keep the one God was set to release. And it's the same for this secure inheritance of man, the, the devil, the world. Any other force cannot take that which is kept in heaven by God for you, for me. Such an inheritance is secure from death, from corruption, from fading. It can't be attacked by marauding bands. It can't fall into the sea and be lost. It can't be chipped away by inflation or taken by fraud. Think of the ways that, that so many people are frightened of, of the ways in which they could lose their inheritance, the way in which the inheritance that they have stored up for their children or their children's children might be defrauded from them. This, this inheritance is truly secure. The believer's inheritance is, is locked in. It's locked in, guaranteed by our God who keeps it. And when we think of the importance of the inheritance of the people of Israel, we can see how greatly comforting this must have been for those living outside of the nation. Like Paul in Colossians, Colossians 3 verses 1 and 2, which says, Therefore you have been raised up with Christ. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. 
Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Peter also ends this letter in chapter 5, verse 4, saying, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. He'll continue to thread this inheritance theme throughout the rest of this epistle. Just as the deliverance to the land or from the land of Egypt should have caused God's people to bless him and devote their lives to his glory and his praise. How much more? How much more shouldn't God's elect from the nations bless our God for this inheritance that is kept and is secure for us, for you, for me? And God's promise about the inheritance of believers, it flows there from the theme. We bless God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because because we believe that Christians are adopted in their new birth. They're heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. And the point is that Peter calls believers in the dispersion to praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because he is also their God and Father. And that they too have an inheritance, an inheritance through their Lord Jesus Christ. For when we study the new birth, when we study adoption, when we study inheritance and the benefit of Jesus' obedience, we see all these things are credited by grace to the believer. We realize that this inheritance, this inheritance has Christ, Christ Jesus, right at the center. For believers are made new by the Holy Spirit sent by Christ. Believers receive an inheritance because of Jesus' atoning sacrifice that removes their sin. They receive the inheritance because of Jesus' imputed righteousness to them, to their account, our account. And now, now they're called to bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For their inheritance is secure. It's secure. Secure because of the, the worth of the one, the one who has achieved it. It is secure and it is effective and it is reliable because of Jesus' own person and work. And because of God's power who guards and keeps these things. So we might ask, well then, what do we do? And the answer is, store up treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys. Where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We must ask how that inheritance is kept in heaven. The answer is in this third point. As we bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thirdly, because of God's power. It's like in the prison. It's recorded in Acts 12. The guards keep watch over Peter. But they're powerless in comparison to the power of God to redeem. Peter's own life, then, is a powerful example of God's supreme ability to accomplish that which he is set out to do. Whether God is intent to call, to train, to humble Peter, and then to restore him and send him out as an apostle to the world, Peter, Peter's life, is a life that is a wonderful example of God's grace and his mercy, for he even sent an angel. He's opened the gates of the prison to set out his apostle, to set his apostle free, free upon the world to proclaim the gospel. God's supreme power is displayed throughout Peter's entire life. And now Peter writes that the dispersed elect, they're, they're guarded. They're guarded by God's power. 
just as this inheritance is secure, the same protection is promised, not just to the inheritance, but to the believer as well. Because, because what, what good is an, an inheritance if, if the believer, the, the one, the one to inherit perishes away? What good is an inheritance if you or I could, could never collect it? Just as the inheritance is secure, the same protection is promised to the believer. We might wonder, what good? What good is an inheritance secured in heaven? You and I, after all, we live on earth. But God's power protects the elect in Israel. The elect spread out in the dispersion. You think of, think of the end of, of Romans 8 and how Paul concludes his wonderful argument, which he takes up into Romans 8 and, and says that those who are justified by faith in Jesus Christ are so secure. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ and nothing can separate them from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's protection of God. It's a great mercy towards his people. It's not deserved. It's not worked for. It's a product of God's faithfulness. It's a product of his loving kindness. And the instrument of God's keeping is also the fruit of being born again. They're, they're kept through faith. They're kept through faith. Faith, you remember, is a, a knowledge. Faith is a, a trust by which we hold for truth all that God has revealed in his word. Faith is a, an assurance that God, through the gospel, saves not only others, but me, but you, too. Faith. Faith is a, a trust that rests in God's promise and in God's power. Second Peter 1 verse 1 says, To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God and Savior Jesus Christ. Faith is a gift, a gift of God. Paul writes, By grace you are saved and not by works. This all implies that even faith, faith as well, is a merciful gift from our God. And all of this, all of this has its focus forward, forward for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Salvation means deliverance. Peter is using salvation as we would, maybe the the word glorification or, or the consummation of all things. Glorification. So that, that full and final promised eternal life, and when that is consummated at the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul gives as well a, an order of salvation in Romans 8. He says, those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Peter here, he has his eyes on that, on that glorification. He has his eyes on the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's speaking here of the elect, the chosen of God. They're justified. They have the mercy of God. They possess an inheritance, a faith, and they're being kept. They're waiting. They're waiting for the final salvation, the glorification of their souls. And we could read parts of Revelation 21. We could read there of our, our inheritance and the heavenly Jerusalem descending and abiding on earth. We could read more in the book of Romans. Romans 13, verse 11, for instance, says, For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone and the day is at hand. 
So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. When we read there of our inheritance, we think about Revelation 21 as well. We think about the coming of our Lord. We can't help but also think about the awe and the power of God's to save. For the glory, the power, the sovereignty of God will accomplish all, all of this. And so what a great encouragement. What a great encouragement to, to Peter's audience. An, an audience that's dispersed. An audience that must have wondered, what is life like now? Now that Christ is ascended, seated in heaven. Now that Christ, Christ has told us he will come. He will come again. How will they live? The congregation notice that just as those lived in the same epoch, the same time frame, the same ones living between the ascension, the glorification of our Lord Jesus Christ and his second coming, so too these words are equally powerful for you and I today. Yes, indeed, these people are to, to center on Jesus. All the benefits they have received are all in God's mercy. The hope that they possess now, they, they wait in fulfillment, having been born again. All of this centers on the doxology, to praise our God, all because of the accomplished work of Jesus Christ our Lord. How much more than for you and for me, thousands of years later, is it not true we are closer, closer to our Lord's return? Indeed, indeed, we ought to be even more zealous, even more fervent, even more assured of our inheritance that is kept secure. For those who are in Christ Jesus, then this is such great news. The truth of this epistle it pulls our affections, draws us then to bless our God for all his gifts. And so we join Peter, not just Peter, we join the original recipients of this letter, blessing our God, and not just them, the saints throughout, throughout history. We bless our God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for all the work that he has done, all the work that he is doing, and the work that he will accomplish. One pastor writes that an application, an implication of this is that we Christian pilgrims should not mope about as if we had no hope, he writes. For we have received God's promise of a royal inheritance. The important thing is this. We must keep looking up all the way to heaven. Our hope is in God who has called us to his eternal glory. What a rich gospel is presented in just these first few verses calls us out in a winsome way, winning souls by placing the benefits of our Lord Jesus Christ before them. But it also, it also is a powerful warning. See, there's a, a powerful warning in this text for those who are outside of Christ. For what inheritance awaits you if you do not belong to Jesus Christ? What inheritance awaits you if you've not been born again to a living hope? What inheritance? Awaits. What expectation would you have for the future? Calls all to bend the knee in prayer, to ask for the Spirit, to turn to Christ. And for those who are in Christ, the passage calls us to join the church, blessing our God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
congregation, let us join them. Let us, let us praise the Lord. Let us bless our God together. Amen.